invite you to open your copy of God's Word with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, and also again to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 7 and 8. 2 Corinthians 5, 21, and Ephesians 1, 7 and 8. We're continuing, this is week two in our uh, series on salvation, the doctrine of salvation, what the Bible teaches about how we are saved from sin and made right with God. Last week we saw the first aspect of salvation, that is election, God's eternal purpose to save sinners from their sin. Excuse me, I yelled too much at the football game last night. But the Lobos won, so... Heyo. Last week we looked at uh, divine election, God's purpose for saving, purpose to save sinners for himself. And today we're going to look at the, the means by which God makes that possible, which is atonement. I want to begin by asking you to consider, just think for a moment. Have you ever hurt a friend or a spouse so deeply that you knew a mere apology alone could not mend the rift in that relationship? Is there ever a breach of trust so grievous, an insult so sharp, a neglect so intentional that it seemed nothing short of your own undoing, your own utter public embarrassment, your own destitution could ever make up for that hurt? And even if those things were possible, even if it were possible for you to be brought to total public shame, injustice for your action, for that insult, for that neglect, that you know that it would still not undo the hurt and the fracture in relationship that you have created? If that's you, dear friend, you can recall an insult, a hurt given to a spouse, given to a friend, given to a family member so deep that a mere apology could not cover, then you know deeply the need and the longing for what the Bible calls atonement. The Bible describes atonement as this. Atonement is the the means by which sinners are reconciled to God through the death and resurrection of Jesus. This is the focus, the focal thought of our time this morning in God's Word. Atonement is the means by which sinners are reconciled to God through the death and resurrection of Jesus. And as we see this truth played out in 2 Corinthians 5:21 and Ephesians 1, 7 and 8, I want you to know this morning, friends, that Jesus has died for you, for your sins. And because he calls us each to trust in his atoning sacrifice, we can live by faith in Christ with confidence that he has made us at peace with God, that he has mended the rift that we have created with God by our sin. Let's hear from God's word this morning, 1st, 2nd Corinthians 5, 21, and then Ephesians 1, 7, and 8. Will you stand with me as you're comfortably able, as we honor God by reading his word? Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, For our sake, he, that is God, he made him, who is Christ, Christ made God, or I'm sorry, God made Christ, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And in Ephesians 1, verses 7 and 8, he writes this to the church at Ephesus, In him, that is, in Christ, We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. 
This is God's Word. You may be seated. Atonement is the means by which sinners are reconciled to God through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The truth of atonement, this biblical teaching that atonement is necessary, that atonement is what Jesus does on the cross, raises a whole host of questions. And I want to try to answer three of them this morning. The first question that arises from this matter of atonement is this. Why is atonement necessary? Now, for some of you, that may seem obvious, but let's engage in a mental exercise for a moment. Why is atonement necessary? Well, atonement is actually a fairly old compound word. If you break it down into its parts, you get the the phrase at-one-ment. Atonement is how two parties at conflict come together again. It's how they are made at one with each other. It's kind of a fancy way of talking about reconciliation. In fact, that's the word that Paul uses all throughout 2 Corinthians 5 in the verses uh, prior to or leading up to our focal verse this morning in 521. This is what Christ does. He reconciles sinners to God. Atonement is the way that this process of making peace between parties at conflict gets done. But this raises another question, I think. Why does anyone need to be reconciled to God? I thought, you may be thinking, the Bible said that God is love. And it's true. The Bible does say God is love. 1 John 4, 8. If God is love, how could he ever be at conflict with anyone? Well, here's the rub. Are you ready for it? It's not so much that God is at conflict with us, dear friends, as it is that we are at deep conflict with God. We have to go all the way back to the beginning of the Bible and to the creation of man to see how it all started. But there in Genesis chapter 2, after God created the universe and the earth, and he created the first man, Adam, in his own image to reflect the glory of God and the character of God into the created world, God gave the man one command, that he could eat from any of the innumerable trees and plants that God had given to him in the garden to nourish him, except one. All the good things I've given you, Adam, are yours to eat, just not this one. And if the man, he says, if Adam, you eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, blatantly and flagrantly disobeying the instruction of God and God's design for his living, by the way, the God who commands Adam not to eat of that one tree is the same God that scripture over and over again says is loving and kind and merciful and gracious and generous. If Adam disobeys blatantly and flagrantly this one command, he would die. And the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. And this command in place, this word from God to Adam, established the man and his wife still eat. And by their disobedience, they have declared themselves to be at conflict with God. There is a rift in the relationship. Now, we're all aware of how disregarding the wishes or the goodwill of those that we're in relationship with hurts those relationships. And, and the intensity or the degree of closeness in relationship is directly related to the intensity or degree to which that relationship is broken by an insult or a hurt. So take, for example, I go to Starbucks maybe uh, sometime this week and I'm cranky because of all of the construction that's going on in the church. And I'd like it to go a little bit quicker, but things are what they are and it's not going as quickly as I'd like it to be. And I'm in a bad mood when I get to Starbucks. And I go to the counter and I order my latte with almond milk because regular milk makes my tummy hurt. So I want almond milk. And when they swing my latte around, complete it at the other end, I find that it's not made with almond milk. It's weighed with whole milk. And I am angry. And I let my barista have it. 
speak a harsh word. Say, how hard is it to just almond milk and not regular milk? For Pete's sake, you do this all day. That barista doesn't know me. I don't even go to Starbucks that often. We don't have a relationship beyond an exchange of money for caffeine. And so they're going to look at me, this crazy idiot, screaming at them in the foyer because they got the milk wrong in my latte, and they're going to brush it off. I've been in customer service. Some of you have too. You know those people. You're just like, yep, that person's going to be that person. Just move them on, go to the next one. My offense, my insult, my harsh word with the barista is not going to cause a great rift in relationship because there's barely a relationship there to begin with. But let's say that my mood gets even worse because my latte got messed up and I'm a prideful, egotistic, selfish person and I go home (laughs) and I find that the, the children have not cleaned their rooms to the exact specifications that I and all of my insanity have imposed upon them. And finding that things are not exactly where I expect them to be, I let my children have it and lay into them about how they don't... Oh, this illustration is getting really too close to home. (laughs) Lay into them about, about how things need to go where they're supposed to go. And don't you know, and you're four years old already. How haven't you figured this out? And rip into them with no grace, with all harshness. What will the result of that relationship be? Well, there will be a deep rift, won't there? A deep breaking of relationship. Because the relationship that I have with my children is way more intimate, way more vulnerable, way more important than the relationship that I have with my barista. The length of time that it will take to overcome those hurts spoken by a harsh word to people who are, who are trusting me and, and have been vulnerable to me is going to take a lot longer to build up so we see that the, the, the offense in and, in and of itself is, is not so much what causes the rift, but the relationship that is there, the trust that is broken, the depth of relationship, the intimacy that is, is there is, is what causes the conflict to be so much greater. So then zoom out, pan out a little bit more beyond just the, the finite relationship of a pastor to his barista or a father to his children, but the living image bearers of God to their infinitely holy, just, loving, merciful, generous creator. And what one word of defiance, what one act of rebellion against a God who in all of his eternal love made us to know, love, and worship him for that purpose. How deep that rift goes. Atonement is necessary because we were made to be in relationship to a holy God and a relationship that is far more intimate, far more deep, far more abiding and life-giving than any of our human relationships. But all of us have sinned against him. If we are to live our full divine purpose in life, we must be reconciled to God. If we are to be who he has made us to be, our sins must be dealt with. Something has to happen to bridge the divide that we have made by our declaration of conflict, of war, of rebellion against God. That's why atonement is necessary. The second question is, if atonement is necessary, okay, I'll give you that much, but why did Jesus have to die? Why did Jesus have to die? Why is it that the Bible over and again says, Jesus has to die for sins? That seems a bit harsh. Well, first of all, we know that the divinely ordained consequence for sin is death. God said to Adam in Genesis 2, In the day that you eat of that fruit, you will surely die. 
Romans chapter 6, verse 23, the wages of sin is death. What you earn for your sin is death. And for God to be perfectly just and for God to be perfectly holy, he must judge sin in the way that he said that he must. He must be consistent with his own character. Now, certainly God can delay his justice for a time. And he does with just about everyone. Not a one of us in this room who are breathing today died at the moment of our first sin. God delays his justice for a time. But eventually the consequence will come. The wages of sin being death will come for everyone. But the death that is earned that scripture speaks about is not just physical death, but also, as Jesus notes time and again in his earthly ministry, a death, the death that we earn for sin is a physical death of the body and a death of relationship to God. It's not just broken anymore, it's dead. Our disregard for God earns, our paycheck for our sin earns our immortal souls an eternity apart from God in a place of infinite sorrow and grief and all of the realized judgment of God called hell. That's what our sin gets us. But God in his love has moved, he he has moved himself to provide a way for us to be reconciled to him. So think of the depth of, Uh, the, the intensity of the rift between us and God created by our sin. And now God, the defrauded party, the offended party says, I'm going to make a way for this to be fixed. Only a loving God could do that. Now again, for God to be God and for God to be just and for God to be consistent with his own character, there must be a death to pay for sins. Wages of sin is death. It must be paid. But in his provision, God has allowed that death to be paid by a substitute. In Genesis 3, The substitute was an animal who was slaughtered by God's own hand to clothe Adam and Eve in the shame of their nakedness with animal skins, far better than the fig leaves that they had tried to and and futilely sewed together. In Leviticus chapter 4 and 5, there are regulations that God gives to his people Israel about animal sacrifices that God will accept on their behalf for the guilt of his people. And even in Leviticus 16, we have instructions for Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, which, by the way, is this coming Thursday, when the whole people of Israel would have their sins atoned, would have their sins paid for by the death of another. A bull given for the sins of the priest and a goat given for the sins of the people. These sacrifices are certainly helpful, stand in for God's punishment, but they're not permanent. The sacrifices keep having to be repeated over and over again because the people keep sinning and fracturing relationship with God over and over again. God's people of Israel needed, Adam and Eve needed, we needed a better sacrifice, a better substitute, a better stand in for us. So it was about 800 years before Jesus was ever born. A prophet, Isaiah, arose and spoke a word from God about a servant who would come to bring salvation to his people. Here's what God said through Isaiah about that servant. Isaiah 53, verses 5 and 6. You should see these words on the screen behind me. The servant was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Substitute language all through there. Him for us. Him for us. His wounds are healing. His piercing for our transgression. 
His crushing for our iniquity. His chastisement for our peace. We come to find out that the servant that Isaiah spoke about was Jesus. The Son of God, the divine creator of the universe in human flesh. He lived a life of perfect, active obedience to God. Never once sinning. Never once breaking fellowship with the Father. And then because it was God's will for him to do so, he was crucified and died. Now what happened on the cross is what Paul wrote for us in 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What does this mean? This means that there on the cross, God treated Christ as he would treat our sin. He looked at Christ as he looked upon our sin. The one who never deserved it, receiving all the punishment for it. In Christ, Paul wrote in Ephesians 7, we have redemption, that is rescue from sin and forgiveness. How? Through his blood, through his death as a substitute for sinners. Why did Jesus have to die? Well, We've seen biblically, sin requires a death. And the deaths of animals in the place of humans are ultimately insufficient. They don't last forever. We need a better sacrifice. One whose value in the eyes of God is not less than ours and not even equal to our value, but even greater. And that's what Christ is, a greater sacrifice. So great, in fact, because of his divinity, And because of his sinless humanity, that his death may be rightly counted by God as sufficient to pay for all the sins of the world. The New Testament tells us over and again. Yes, sin requires death. But our hearts long for reconciliation. Knowing that we've broken fellowship with God. Knowing that we're not in the kind of relationship with God that we ought to desire. We long to be made right with him. And God's heart longs for us to be reconciled to him as well. So he sends his son at the right time in human history to be that innocent substitute for us, friend, for you. And to die so that by his death we can be at one-ment with God. Because even as they were looked on favorably by God, we, we read in Hebrews chapter 10 that those bulls, those goats were ultimately incapable, insufficient for taking away sins. We need a better sacrifice. We need a better substitute. One of perfect purity and infinite worth to take our place under the judgment of God against our sin. Friend, that's why Jesus had to die. For our sake, he made him who knew no sin to be sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Atonement reconciliation with God because of the vicarious substitute, the standing in of another for our penalty before God. Third question. First question, why is atonement necessary? Because sin is real. Second question, why did Jesus have to die? Because a death is necessary for sins. And for us to be reconciled to God, there must be a death of infinite worth and infinite purity and perfection to stand in for the sins of Sinful people. Third question. Why does this matter to me? Why does atonement matter for any of us today? There are four implications of the doctrine, the teaching of atonement for us. 
this morning. And the first one is this. You need to know, brothers and sisters, friends, that Jesus died for you. I put emphasis on that word, you. He died for you. There are personal, individual implications of Jesus' death. Over and again, Scripture reminds us that it was for our personal sins that Jesus died. Peter says in 1 Peter 2, verse 24, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Understand this this morning. Jesus did not die for sin in the abstract. He did not die for sin as a concept. Like, if it should ever come about as a sort of impersonal, uh, uh, unintentional, cosmic reality that nobody has real responsibility for, but Jesus dies for it anyway. Jesus didn't die for sins like that. He died for sins in the concrete. He, he died for your personal acts of rebellion against God. He died for sins that we have committed, for sins, friend, that you have committed. Dear friend, he died for you and to atone for your sins, your lies, your lust, your anger, your murder, your bribery, your hatred, your selfishness, your sexual sin, all of it. Jesus died to make you right with God for all of it, for what you have done. Jesus knew what he was doing when he went to the cross. He knew who he was dying for as he hung there. People who didn't deserve this act of grace and mercy. And he knew that his resurrection from the dead further would secure the perfect salvation for everyone who trusts in his atoning sacrifice. Who comes to the altar, that is Calvary, and says, this sacrifice is mine. I'm trusting in this one. He died for all of it, friend, for you. For the purpose of magnifying God's mercy toward sinners. Understand there is nothing left to pay. There is nothing you can prove. It's all been done for you personally, individually. Second, this matters for us because we need to to know and deal with the fact that you need to be reconciled to God. The reality of atonement shows us that sin really does destroy our relationship to God. It really does. The sins that Jesus died for are the sins that keep us from fellowship with our Creator. Human beings are not merely ignorant of God's holiness, friends. We have willingly defied it. We do not simply need to try to be better. We need to be made at one with God. So friend, if you don't know Christ is Lord, if you've not come to the altar that is His cross to trust in His sacrifice for your sins, to be reconciled to God, my question to you today is what is preventing you from doing that? What is preventing you from trusting Jesus to reconcile you to God? Does pride over your own moral integrity keep you from seeing your moral indiscretions, your moral trespasses for what they really are? Do you think in your mind, oh, I'm not really that bad, I haven't killed anyone? Certainly, I don't need Jesus to die for me. I haven't embezzled millions of dollars. Is your self-assurance and entrepreneurial spirit driving you to find your own way to God? Ah, maybe I haven't done it all exactly right, but I can figure this out. I'll make a way. 
I can get this right. Perhaps what's keeping you from being reconciled to God through faith in Jesus who died for your sins is that the idea of atonement is repugnant and ugly to you. Someone or something else having to die for another. That's just nasty and cruel, isn't it? If so, friend, consider that the picture of atonement from animal sacrifices to the Old Testament all the way to Jesus on the cross, the picture of atonement is meant to portray in visceral terms the spiritual effects of our sin. It's nasty, deadly, bloody, ugly business. Consider also that Christ was not forced to die for sins, but he went willingly. This is not a case of divine child abuse. Jesus says in the garden, not my will, Father, but yours be done. I want to do what you desire. Jesus suffered all the pain and all the sorrow that every human being does in this earthly life, and he did so willingly. He went to the cross where he would receive all of God's just wrath for sin, willingly. Wrath is an ugly word. We don't like to use it, especially in relation to God, mostly because we only really understand human wrath. Human wrath is anger by what someone else has done to us that we seek to to take revenge for. Human wrath is vengeful and and usually selfish and motivated by, by pride and a desire to be justified and vindicated in this world. That's not how Scripture understands God's wrath. Now, certainly His wrath is incited by His anger for sin. Absolutely. God is perfectly holy, perfectly just. Injustice on our part against Him would make Him angry. A just judge should get angry at injustice and evil and wickedness. His wrath, though, is not vengeful. God does not say the wages of sin is death because He really enjoys killing people. He doesn't say the wages of sin is death so that I can get my way and I can be vindicated and I'm the one that everybody knows is in charge. No, he says the wages of sin is death because sin is ugly and it is cosmically defiant and it is infinitely harmful to our relationship with God. It does make him angry because it's not what he made us for. And still, Jesus went to the cross where he received all of God's divine wrath in the place for sinners willingly. When Jesus went to the cross, friends, he knew what was coming. He's not surprised by any of it. He knew it was God's eternal purpose for him to die for sinners, and he did it on purpose. He did all of this knowing what was coming, knowing that it was the best and most right way to accomplish God's plan for saving sinners. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. That same Jesus Christ who is treated as sin for our sake so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Understand this morning, friends, this is the heart of the gospel. Uh, apart from Christ's death for sins, for the purpose of our reconciliation to God, there is no good news to the gospel. The greatest threat facing any of us today is not financial insecurity. It's not homelessness or mental health. The greatest issue facing all of us today is our eternal relationship with God that is broken by our sin. And if that remains undealt with at the end of our lives, we have... We have nothing. We've gained nothing for all of our wealth and security and family relationships and everything else. 
Jesus' death for sins is right at the heart of the gospel. And apart from it, there is hardly any good news in it at all. But the very good news is that because Jesus died for sins, sinners can be made right with God. The wages of sin is death, yes. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Jesus died for you. You need to be reconciled to God, and you can be simply by trusting in Him. Simply by recognizing your sin against God and saying, I am sorry for it. And in your own heart, in your own way, expressing faith, that is trust, that is dependence upon Jesus as the only sacrifice who could pay for your sins to an infinitely holy God and giving your life to Him as Lord. The same one who said, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden and I'll give you rest. It's the same one who died for our sins. It's the one who gives us rest, rest and peace with God. You need to be reconciled to God today, and you can be, by trusting Christ. Third, what this doctrine of atonement means for us, specifically for you, Christian, is that you need to remember the burden that has been lifted. In the light of atonement, you need to remember and be reminded of the burden that has been lifted from you. The reality of Christ's atonement for your sin should be of the utmost relief for you every day. Not only has Jesus died in your place to pay for your past sins, but also for every future sin that you may commit, praise God. Now, of course, this does not give us license after coming to faith in Christ, after trusting Him and His death and resurrection for our forgiveness. It doesn't give us license to go on sinning after trusting Him. Paul in Romans 6 says as much. Coming to Christ now, should we go on sinning so that grace may abound? By no means, that's ridiculous. But Christ's death and resurrection, our faith in Him, does relieve us of having to make it up to God when we do sin. Not only has Christ's sinless death been counted for your sins, but His sinless obedience in life has been reckoned to you as well. He has not died to give you a clean slate and a fresh shot at proving yourself to God. Nor has He died... Uh, so that he can give you a clean shot at proving yourself to God after every sin that you commit. You know, you you go back to Jesus, okay, forgive me. All right, God, I'm going to try harder this time. Jesus, wipe the slate clean. Now I can, you know, know, I'll I'll try to make it up to you again. Jesus' atonement, the, the, the grace that he makes available to all who trust in him is not like, it's not, it's not, let me think of it this way. Like, it's not an integer or uh, an integer-based faith. Like, it goes this far, and then you've got to get a little bit more if you mess up, and then you've got to go back and get a little bit more. It's there all the time, in full, forever. Jesus has brought you with all your flaws and all your faults to stand with confidence before God and to pursue obedience and spiritual freedom from having to be sinless. Amen. Do we, in Christ... After coming to Christ by faith, after being reconciled to God through Jesus, do we still sin? Yup. Paul talks about the struggle he has with sin in Romans chapter 7. The things I don't want to do, I end up doing. The things that I don't want to do, I I do end up doing. and, And I'm all messed up inside. Wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death? And he begins Romans chapter 8, 8, chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now, though, no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Will we struggle in sin, struggle with sin after coming to faith in Jesus, after being reconciled to God? Yes. But does that mean that we are any less reconciled to God because of who Christ is? No. 
John writes in his first letter, 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 through 6, he says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He's the propitiation. That's a big word that means atoning sacrifice. He is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commandments. Whoever says, I know Him, but does not keep His commandments is a liar and the truth is not in Him. But whoever keeps His word in Him truly, the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in Him. Whoever says He abides in Him ought to walk in the same way in which He walked. Jesus' death does not make us, does not give us license to live however we want after coming to faith in him. But it does give us a constant and sure and certain advocate before the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, to go before us, to plead his own blood on our behalf, even when we do sin after trusting him. Christian, this should be of utter relief to you every day. You didn't have to prove yourself to God to receive his grace, and you don't have to prove yourself to God to keep his grace. But if by God's grace, through your faith, you have been saved, you'll walk in the manner in which he has called you. Fourth, and especially for Christians, what does this doctrine of atonement mean for us? It means that you are meant, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you are meant to be a minister of reconciliation. In the verses just prior to our key verse today in 2 Corinthians 5, 16 through 20, Paul wrote this. If you have your Bible still open, you can follow along. Paul says, 2 Corinthians 5, 16, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ... God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the ministry of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Christian, if you have been reconciled to God, then this is your calling. As a new creation by your faith in Jesus, in Christ's atoning death and his victorious resurrection, you have been given a gift from God, the gift of a ministry, the gift of service. We have been tasked by God to serve this good news of Christ's atoning work and the reconciliation that we have with God that, it, that his death brings to serve that good news to all who will hear it and to serve it hot and ready. So Christian, fulfill your calling. Bear the message of Christ's atonement into a world of people hurting in their sin and longing to be made right. Hold out the hope of forgiveness to those who are incarcerated for their grievous crimes. Lift the heart of mothers who grieve their past abortions with the promise that Christ's blood covers all manner of sin. Point alcoholics and addicts to the God who sent his son to reconcile them to himself and that through their faith in Jesus, they can be reconciled to their families and their friends whom they have offended and insulted. Christian, proclaim with joy to the father who blows up in anger every day that Christ died so that not only might that father's anger be forgiven, 
but that he can be made right with God, made new in soul, and seek the forgiveness and healing of his wife and his children. Carry out your calling as ministers of reconciliation. Atonement is the means by which sinners are reconciled to God through the death and resurrection of Jesus and by no other means. Brothers and sisters, God has atoned for our sins by the costly and innocent blood of His sinless Son, a price that He has not demanded from us. So then, having been atoned for, having been reconciled to God, let us who know Christ go and be ministers of the same reconciliation, ministers of the same good news, that the price for sins has been paid in full. All that remains to receive it is to trust in Jesus. Let's pray together.